0: Well, I hope you've all been waiting patiently. As you know, the title to the talk is Philosophy and Patience, and the subtitle is Without Patience, There Can Be No Peace. By the way, my name is Shane Mulhall. In the course of preparing this talk over the summer, it was absolutely shocking to find out how impatient I am. And this was revealed by a simple test a question was put to a wise man once and the question was are there ways for gauging one's spiritual strength and the answer was many and the disciple asked well, just give me one way and the wise man answered find out how often you become disturbed in the course of a single day I needed a calculator <laughs> because holding this in mind actually revealed a life of seemingly endless petty irritations of impatient moments I find that I am impatient with children who don't close doors who leave bikes out in the rain something I never ever did (laughs) despite what my father's memory is I'm impatient at having to step over school bags which always seem to be left at the front door, being asked for money every day by each child, by hotel teapots that cover entire tables without putting a drop into the cup, by salt sellers that are blocked, pepper cellars that will not yield any pepper, supermarket plastic bags that it's impossible to tell which end is which (laughs) and that will not open unless you've got a surgeon's hands. In fact, I'm impatient with people who drive too slow, people who drive too fast, people who drive too close to me, people who drive too far behind the next person ahead of me. In fact, virtually all drivers make me impatient. (laughs) and all pedestrians (laughs) so the list is endless so the question that you have to face is how often do you become disturbed every day and this will tell you how impatient you are and it also reveals how petty the impatience is nothing of any really great importance makes me impatient. They're tiny little things. Now, the highest level of patience, according to Marsilio Ficino, the man from the Italian Renaissance, what he says is, the whole virtue of patience consists in this alone, that we fully accept as good whatever takes place under the governance of infinite goodness. He further says that one cannot have patience without religion. No religion, no patience. And we we'll look at that at the end of the talk. Well, what's not patience? Patience is not self-restraint, it's not biting your lip, it's not suppression, It's not being well-mannered or polite or socially trained. It's not apathy, allowing evil to triumph. Well, let us consider what is patience. And a lot of what is said under this heading comes from various letters written by Marsilio Ficino, which you can read in full if you so wish. He says... You can choose to suffer willingly or suffer unwillingly. Patience goes with faith and thus conquers the effect of faith. It makes the unavoidable voluntary. It turns the bad into good. And patience involves no activity, but leads to true action. It's not acting, but suffering well. And to suffer well is simply a willingness to suffer what you have to suffer even if you do not wish to. To act well you may need intelligence, learning, experience and other resources. But to suffer well simply requires a decision to do so. And patience or your patience, is only known when tried. You discover your patience in the fullness of adversity. So if you're waiting for someone, and you're waiting five minutes, you can be under the illusion that I am a patient man. I'm enjoying waiting, watching all the people going by, noticing their attire, all that sort of stuff. After 15 minutes, Now getting a bit tiring watching all these people. But I am a patient man. And then the person turns up 30 minutes late, and I explode. Well, I'm not a patient man. One discovers one's patience in the fullness of adversity. Thus, patience is to endure without loss of bliss. Patience is to endure without loss of bliss. And patience is an aspect of love. So consider teaching a child A, B, C, or how to spell cat, or one, two, three, or teaching an adult to drive. Just think of how many times you have to say C, A, T, before the child can repeat it back. And what about letting a child help you when you could do it quicker yourself? Can I hammer the nail for you, Daddy? Or can I do the washing up for you? Without love, what a burden it would be to teach a child or to teach anybody anything, in fact. The greater the love, the greater the patience. Patience is not an absence of action. Rather, it's timing. It waits on the right time to act, for the right principles to enact, and in the right way. The man who founded the School of Philosophy, Leon McLaren, he said that he waited ten years in his room for a student to put a real question to him. That's a long wait. He had the answers, But nobody had the questions. So he waited and waited. And eventually in ten years, somebody came along with a real question. You see, if a man can't ask the question, the answer is no good to him. So you have to wait. Well, let us listen to a quotation from Ecclesiastes. It says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven." a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. This says that for everything, there is a time. And if this is true, what's the rush? And what's the delay? If there is a time for everything, why be impatient? A gardener or a farmer knows this. He knows that it's no good to plant too early. And it's no good planting too late. There's a time to plant. There's also a time to get on a bus. If you try and get onto the bus before it arrives at the bus stop, you put your life in danger. If you try to get onto the bus after it leaves the bus stop, you need great exertion. There is a time to get on that bus. Well, maybe there's a time to marry. Maybe there's a time to have children a time to move home, a time to start a business, a time to stop. Maybe, as the Bible says, there's a time for everything, and we just do not know the time. And if we did know the time, there would be no rush, no delay, no failure. Life would be easy, ordered, lawful and fruitful and there will be no impatience. Well what are the fruits or effects of impatience on our lives? As Marsilio Ficino says impatience is so bad that without it nothing is bad for us and with it nothing good. We never really suffer adversity except when we suffer it perversely. Impatience alone causes adversity, which could relate merely to external things and to the body, to pass right through to the soul as well. Our choice is whether to suffer willingly or suffer unwillingly. And if you choose to suffer unwillingly, this will greatly exceed suffering willingly. With impatience, you suffer fate. With patience, you transcend fate. Impatience makes the good bad and the bad even worse. It reduces the pleasure of the good and magnifies the pain of the bad. Impatience makes the mind stupid. And this is why the tortoise will always beat the hare. Now, none of us believe that. You know when you're told this story about this tortoise and this hare, you think, I don't believe that. (laughs) Have you ever seen a tortoise move? He couldn't possibly beat the hare. The tortoise will always beat the hare. And there's a story, and for those of you who've done part one, you've heard this story, which would be good to hear it again in the light of this topic. A man called Matajuro Yajiu was the son of a famous swordsman. His father, believing that his son's work was too mediocre to anticipate mastership, disowned him. So Matajura went to Mount Futura, and there found the famous swordsman, Banzo. But Banzo confirmed the father's judgment. You wish to learn swordsmanship under my guidance? Asked Banzo. You cannot fulfill the requirements. But if I work hard, How many years will it take me to become a master, persisted the youth. The rest of your life, replied Banzo. I cannot wait that long, explained Matajuro. I am willing to pass through any hardship, if only you will teach me. If I become your devoted servant, how long might it be? Oh, maybe ten years, Banzo relented. My father's getting old, and soon I must take care of him continued Matajuro. If I work far more intensively, how long would it take me? Oh, maybe thirty years, said Banzo. And why is that, asked Matajuro. First you say ten, and now thirty years. I will undergo any hardship to master this art in the shortest time. Well, said Banzo, in that case you will have to remain with me for seventy years. A man in such a hurry as you are to get results, seldom learns quickly. Very well, declared the youth, understanding at last that he was being rebuked for impatience. And he agreed. He said, I agree. And Matajura was told never to speak of fencing, never to touch a sword. He cooked for his master, washed the dishes, made his bed, cleaned the yard, cared for the garden, all without a word of swordsmanship. Three years passed, and still Matajuru laboured on, and thinking of his future, he was sad. He had not even begun to learn his art to which he had devoted his life. But one day, Banzo crept up behind him and gave him a terrific blow with a wooden sword. The following day, when Matajuro was cooking rice, Banzo again sprang upon him unexpectedly. After that day and night, Matajuru had to defend himself from unexpected thrusts. Not a moment passed any day that he did not have to think of the taste of Banzo's sword. He learned so rapidly, he brought smiles to the face of his master, and Matajuru became the greatest swordsman on the land. Now, if you happen to be the father of Matajuru, and you were paying for this course, (laughs) and you wrote to him after two years and say, how are you getting on? And he said, well, my cooking has improved dramatically, (laughs) but I haven't held a sword yet. You see, you still believe in the hair. Well, notice the excellent decorator. It's all in the patient preparation. Impatience destroys knowledge. When you demand the name of your friend who's walking towards you down the street, the knowledge disappears. With impatience, the knowledge of how to drive a car accident-free goes. Nowadays, impatience causes us to want to know before we experience. And therefore we distrust our teachers and parents. We find it hard to take instruction because we want proof in advance that the advice works which is impossible impatience fills the heart with anxiety fear discouragement and failure we demand to love before we marry so that we can be sure it will work out we're more interested in marrying the man or woman we love rather than loving the man or woman we marry You marry rightly, be patient, and love arises naturally. Gandhi said, to lose patience is to lose the battle. And there's a nice sporting story to indicate this. Many years ago, the remarkable fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. The second fight. In the first fight, George Foreman had nearly killed Muhammad Ali, and Muhammad Ali was well past his best and they had this rematch which a lot of people didn't want to take place because it was so dangerous for Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, if you remember him, used to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee and it was very hard to land a punch on Muhammad Ali. But in this fight he stood in the corner and George Foreman pummeled him. Blow after blow after blow. And during the fight you can hear the trainer screaming at Muhammad Ali. And he says, get off the ropes. And Muhammad Ali says, I know what I'm doing. And for 10 rounds, he takes unmerciful punishment. And George Foreman is exhausted by this. He's been throwing 100 punches around and he's now exhausted. And Muhammad Ali comes out of the corner and knocks him out. It was known as rope a dope. <laughs> Don't be the dope. What are the fruits of patience? Patience creates confidence, decisiveness, and a rational outlook which eventually leads to success. There's a man in the school called Dr. Camillus Power, who's a consultant anesthetist, and he has done some work on pain, particularly chronic pain, and he was telling me a story recently. He said, nowadays, you get very few patients. Most of them are amateur
1: doctors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So they come to you with all their knowledge. And because they have this knowledge, they're not patient. They're not patients. They don't see you as the doctor. And he told this lovely story of a man who suffered from chronic and constant pain for which no doctor could find any cure. And he was referred to Camilla's power. And this was a very bright young man, sort of an innocent 25-year-old. So he had absolute respect for this senior doctor, senior consultant. And Dr. Power asked him, was he ever free from the pain? And the man said, well, whenever I played the accordion, There seemed to be no pain. But the pain got so bad in the rest of the time that I gave up playing the accordion. So now the pain is constant. And Camillus found himself saying to the man, take up playing the accordion again. And what will happen is the absence of pain will grow and grow and grow. He said, I want you to play it in the morning and the evening. And this gap in which there is a pain-free state, will grow and grow and grow, and one day the pain will be gone. And as he was saying this, he doubted it himself. But there was something so innocent, so confident about the young man, that he said it and didn't withdraw it. And so the young man went off absolutely believing if he could play the the, accordion in the morning and the evening, he would be relieved of this chronic pain. Anyway, about nine months later, the man rang up Dr. Power and said, I won't be coming back. The pain's gone. And as Camilla said, "Is is perhaps the only patient he's ever totally cured. Isaac Newton said, If I have ever made any valuable discoveries, it is owing more to patient attention than to any other talent. You think you're not a world-famous scientist because you're not a genius. Maybe you're not a world-famous scientist because you're impatient. Jesus, in the parable of the scattering of the seeds, said, But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. With patience, you remain true to yourself. Again, Jesus said, in your patience, possess ye your souls. And what would the life be if you lost your soul? But well, when impatient, you lose your soul. Patience is the sole remedy for evils, because with it, fear goes, anger subsides, Envy dissolves, arrogance is eliminated. And with patience, all the other virtues are perfected. Growth in patience leads to growth in fearlessness, generosity, equanimity, compassion to all, forgiveness, purity of heart, uprightness, serenity, gentleness, fortitude, steadfastness, harmlessness, courtesy, modesty, and valor. Patience transforms evil into good and allows the good to be enjoyed in full. And because of the growth of forbearance, one is capable of enduring without loss of bliss. Imagine that facing all the events of life without loss of bliss. What causes impatience? The sole cause of impatience is desire. As the creation cannot move at the speed demanded by desire other than by coincidence, there is a virtual constant delay or frustration in the fulfilment of one's desires. And this frustration or delay in the fulfilment of my desires manifests as impatience. And it's important to appreciate this fact. The creation does not move at the speed of your desires. Businesses take longer to succeed than you desire. Holidays pass more quickly than you desire. Children take longer to mature than you desire. Whenever you desire, events are actually moving at a different speed to the desire and therefore arises impatience. And a thing to note is that good things tend to take longer to mature and appear to move very slowly at the start. Now what desires you have is totally determined by who you think you are at that particular moment of time. And it's all utterly mechanical. If you see yourself as Irish, then you want a particular result to the match. If you see yourself as Dutch, you desire a completely different result to the match. If you're a businessman, if that's your image of yourself, then you'll desire lower taxes, a drop in wage levels, an increase in salary levels, because that's what you're paid. If you're a driver, you desire bigger roads. If you're a pedestrian, it's bigger footpaths. As your image of yourself is totally unique, you have a unique set of mechanical desires. There's nobody else like you in the world and nobody else in the world has your set of desires. Everybody has their own unique set. However, we're constantly trying to surround ourselves with people sharing our set of unique desires at that point in time. And this is impossible to achieve and therefore there's impatience. My unique set of desires makes me unique and makes everybody else other than myself. So other drivers make me impatient. Other people's children drive me insane. And other nationalities are impossible to live with. When there is no other, then there's no impatience. And for there to be no other, there needs to be no self-image. Rather than I am a driver, let there just be driving. And then there's fast driving, and there's slow driving, and there's driving in heavy traffic, and there's driving on the open road, and no cause for impatience. But if I am a driver then I like to drive at a particular speed and I only accept a certain number and type of drivers on the road at the same time as I'm on the road. Otherwise I'm impatient and this unique identity means I have my way of doing things. And then I want people to do things my way because my way is the right way. In fact, it's the best way. Most times I think it's the only way. And this makes me intolerant and impatient with all other ways. And the most challenging situation of all is, of course, marriage. Two unique people get married. I married her to fulfill my desires. she married me to fulfill hers. We have two sets of desires. They don't always coincide. So we find this impatience between us. And as I was down in France, I had the courage to ask my wife, what few little things about me (laughs) caused her impatience? She exaggerated greatly, of course. (laughs) But I'm going to mention two. What she described is that when I go somewhere and I become lost, I continue driving. (laughs) And I won't wind down the window and ask anybody. And my wife waits and waits And then she asks the worst question possible. Are you lost? (laughs) So I scream at her that I'm trying to concentrate. And then she makes useful suggestions. Why don't you ask that person? (laughs) Which makes me determined to drive past him at speed. Or why don't you go back to the last town or whatever? She doesn't know how much is at stake when I'm lost. <laughs> and the second thing is this virtual it's virtual refusal on my part to take my Wellington boots off when I come in from the gardening. So I I do also things like I wait till she's not near the front door and I sort of tiptoe through the hall and that. But my wife is the equivalent of a forensic scientist. <laughs> She can smell a boot market at about 500 yards. Now I think it's insane that she asks me to take off the boots. I'm so tired from gardening. Anyway, so I thought of a few as regards to her. <laughs> I can't believe how long it takes her to leave a party. I say, we're going and then I'm at the front door that's the time obviously to go to the toilet to make arrangements to see her mother in about four weeks time and to insist on saying goodbye to everybody whereas I just normally wave goodbye so it takes her about 10 or 15 minutes I don't understand why the cup has to go in that particular press in the kitchen what difference does it make And I don't understand the speed at which she walks. And I understand even less the speed at which my children walk. It's like mourners behind a... uh, (laughs) a coffin. When I walk, I'm going somewhere. And some things that bother me don't seem to bother her. I can't let paint dry without testing it <laughs> or glue to set without testing it and they haven't made a kettle that boils quick enough for me. Sometimes I make tea with lukewarm water <laughs> and then don't drink it. Well, why the hurry? Where is one rushing to? What are you going to do when you get there? Rush off again? You think you're missing the future, but in fact you're missing the present. Well, what helps growth of patience? And the first thing to appreciate, that patience is a discipline. It needs to be practiced. You won't wake up one morning patient. You see this with children. Children. Ask a child to wait a minute, and after five seconds it's tugging at you again. It's a discipline, and it needs to be practiced. So these are some factors which help the growth of patients. The first thing is one needs to eliminate the concept of other from your mind, because the other is always the enemy. The other driver is in my way. So one should be aware of the existence and equality of others. And with equality comes love. Grant everything its right of existence. Grant everything its purpose. Let your wife be a woman and your husband be a man and let your child be a child. Be as you are and let everything be as it is. And remember that whatever in others offends you, there is also much in you that offends others. And the second thing is to work with nature and not desire. Observe how nature works. When you work with desire, you pressurize. You pressurize the paint to dry more quickly than nature dries it. If the screw is stuck in tight, apply oil to it. Let the scab fall off in its own time. Stop looking under the scab all the time. (laughs) Always use the right implement for the job, not the one in your hand. And never, ever, ever apply pressure when teaching a child. It'll only turn away. And the third factor which helps growth of patience is the development of waiting without waiting. Not waiting for, but simple waiting. So you speak when someone wants to hear what you have to say, not when you have something to say. You know, a man may be an alcoholic and you can tell him a thousand times not to drink. But if he doesn't want to hear what you have to say, it's a waste. It actually causes resistance. So you wait without waiting. You wait until the person wants to hear what you have to say. And this makes advice effective. I've told this story many times, but again, it's worth hearing in the light of this particular topic, the story of the Buddha who was sitting under a tree silently, and a man came to him and started to abuse him verbally. And the Buddha sat there silently pitying the man's folly. And eventually the man ran out of abuse. You'll notice this if you don't react, the person ultimately runs out of abuse. So eventually the man is reduced to silence. And when he's silent, the Buddha speaks to him. He asks him a question. He says, my son, if a man offers a present to another and the other declines the offer, with whom will the present remain? And the man says, well, it will remain with the giver. And the Buddha says, well, I refuse to accept thy abuse and request thee to keep it thyself. As sure as night follows day and the shadow of the substance, evil overcomes the evildoer without fail. And the man went away ashamed and came back and took refuge in the butter. That's patience. That's timing. You speak when the man can hear. The fourth factor which helps in the growth of patience is to resist not evil. Because of our concepts, we create good and evil. and Therefore, there will be evil in our lives, as far as we're concerned. And Because there is evil in our lives, there will be suffering in our lives. So we need to learn to suffer well. And to suffer well is to suffer willingly. Then one is unaffected by the events of life. That which does not know how to yield is broken. Yielding is accepting. Water is yielding and yet can wash away the mountain. All impatience is resistance. And to accept is to say yes to life in its entirety. Not yes to what I like and no to what I dislike, It's not resignation, but a welcoming of all life. Now, how can patience be perfected? Marsilio Ficino says, one cannot have patience without religion, i.e., one cannot perfect patience without religion. Why does he say this? Because with the belief in God comes supreme confidence in universal justice and love and the knowledge that all unfolds under divine governance. With the belief in God, the following becomes practical. And I'm just taking little quotes or part quotes from the Bible. Take no thought for the moral. How could you do that without confidence in God? To take no thought for the morrow. How could you have confidence if you didn't believe that your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things? How could you have confidence and therefore patience if you didn't believe, ask, and it shall be given? Why would you forgive your brother 70 times 7 if you didn't believe in God. True patience is to have absolute confidence in God, i.e. that all is well and all will be well. Marsilio Ficino says, Patience is really loving all things. In loving all things we unite with God's will We are united with the supreme good whenever we join wholeheartedly with the will of God. And united with God, we shall successfully surmount fortune, nature, and faith. The Bible says, all things come to those who wait. Never think that God's delays are God's denials. imagine if the first woman that I thought I loved had married me. God help her and God help me. I'm glad he delayed the event. With the perfection of patience, what goes is my time and what replaces it is God's time. Everything takes place in God's time, not in my time. And God's time is in good time. So let everything unfold in God's time. And ultimately, that time is now, because God's time is now. So one lives in the now, and then you live in patience. For you, time is no longer a burden, and you go free. And the following story, to bring this talk to an end, illustrates this supreme or perfect patience. There was a Mahatma living in a secluded place under a tamarind tree. He did his devotional act of meditation every day. And there's a deity known as Narada. And he is supposed to be the messenger of the absolute who keeps on descending to earth gathering information to keep the Absolute fully informed. He happened to be making his rounds, and he came upon this Mahatma and engaged him in conversation, wanting to know what he was doing. The Mahatma said, well, this is all drama, and at the moment I'm engaged in the drama of meditation, and who are you? And Narada replied that he was the messenger of the Absolute, and came to collect information about all the devotees of God, so that he could tell him, i.e. God, about their well-being. And the Mahatma said that this was excellent, as he could take a message. And Narada said, yes, why not? And the Mahatma asked, ask him, ask God, when there will be a meeting. And Narada went away and came back after some time to the Mahatma, who asked him, is there any reply? And Narada said, yes, there was a reply, but it was rather a bitter one and he would rather not give it as the Mahatma's heart would sink. And the Mahatma said, but if there is any reply from the Absolute, my heart would never sink. Don't worry about it, just give me the answer. And Narada said, well, look at this tamarind tree. It has very small leaves and millions of them. As many leaves as there are on this tree, you will have to wait the same number of years, after which God will come to meet you. This is the message. At this, the Mahatma burst into ecstasy and started dancing with bliss, completely forgetting himself. And Narada was quite baffled by this man, who, although told he had to wait millions of years before the Union could take place, was dancing with joy. And he asked, Wait, have you really understood what I've said? The Mahatma replied, Yes, I heard. And Narada said, Well, what did you hear? And the Mahatma said, As many leaves as there are on the tamarind tree, so many years will I have to wait, and then he will come. Then Narada asked, why all the dancing? The Mahatma said, I'm not going to count the number of years and the leaves. All that matters is that I have had a message from the Absolute, and he is going to meet me. He will never let me down. That's what really matters." And once again, he started dancing. At that moment, the absolute himself descended and embraced the Mahatma. And Narada was very disturbed. He said, my lord, I am your messenger, but don't let me be proved a liar. You said it will be so many years, and that is what I have told the Mahatma, and you have broken your word and descended immediately. You didn't even wait an hour, and you fulfilled a promise which was supposed to wait years. Then the absolute said, these things are for ordinary men. If there is someone special, then questions of time and space have to be ignored and the meeting must be instantaneous. With the perfection of patience comes the elimination of time and therefore the elimination of impatience. Thank you. You're very lucky, I was just about to explode. Now, now, so, if you'd like to put your questions. That normally kills the question, but anyway.
2: I'd just like to ask, how much progress have you made with your patients? Since
0: you started trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I um, started to write this talk, which was about three or four months ago, First of all, the shock was the degree of impatience and the frequency of it and the pettiness of it and the pain of it. I think that was the most startling was the pain. So there has been efforts to work at it. And as I was saying to somebody during the break, actually, while on holidays in France, I did manage to open up one of those little plastic bags without losing my temper. So I consider that... Absolutely remarkable progress. (laughs) What I've noticed is this, is, as was said here, that patience is an aspect of love. Why should people behave the way I want them to behave? Why not allow Americans, say, to speak loudly, or Italians to speak fast, or English to speak authoritatively, or why not allow my wife to walk as slowly as she does? There's nothing wrong with it, in fact. Absolutely nothing. And it's like burdens falling off because everything is fine the way it is. So, in fact, the efforts and the success, or the relative success over the last three months have been very encouraging. As long as I remain patient with myself, I think there's great hope for the future. (laughs) So, thank you. Sorry, somebody else. Yes.
1: I just want to um, say, do you think that the times we're living in now, that is it harder to be patient in the fast pace of life? And, for example, if you're in a work environment and people are very impatient, they want results straight away and that sort of thing, that it's harder to hold your own centre amongst that. And what have you to say, advice for that? Yes.
0: It's actually not the speed of life because on that basis, a Grand Prix driver will be an unbelievably impatient person, but they can do 200 miles an hour in total patience. It's nothing to do with the speed of events. It's the amount of desire. It is a fact that we desire more and more and more. What we define as the poverty line now is world-class living compared to what it used to be. What we would define the poverty line in Ireland is luxurious for maybe 70 or 80% of the world. There's no end to desire. And all desire causes impatience. So yes, there is a lot more impatience nowadays. But not because of the speed of life or the speed of events, but the amount of desires which we have. So it's not a matter of wishing if other people didn't have such strong desires, I could be much more patient. <laughs> you know, if my boss only <laughs> didn't desire things in five minutes, then I could be much more patient. Patience is it's up to you, nothing to do with anybody else. Once the love for the other goes, you will be impatient. Yes, there's a lady here.
1: You kind of answered, half answered the question I was going to ask. You spoke a lot about patience with external things, and I wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about patience with ourselves, with myself.
0: Yes. Well, you will not be patient with others unless you're patient with yourself. So the first thing is you have to love yourself. We are extremely critical of ourselves. And just to take it at a physical level, a child can look in a mirror. And enjoy what it sees. It sort of look and you know do things with its hair and (laughs) like and if somebody comes into the room it doesn't blush and attempt to clean the mirror, you know, and that sort of thing. (laughs) But if I said to you and I say to you there's nothing personal about this, or say to myself, how pleased am I when I look in the mirror? Well, I'm not pleased. Now, it's not just at a physical level I'm not pleased. If I look at my impatience, I'm not pleased. And if I look at all sorts of traits, then I'm not pleased. Just like the scab will heal over a period of time. It's It's got to be allowed to fall off. These traits can go in time. It's these crash diets with regard to our natures which are so painful. So, one needs to love oneself without any criticism, every human being is magnificent. Not magnificent in everything, but has magnificence. So, if you find yourself magnificent at making money or something like that, well, let let somebody else make magnificent food for you. You don't have to criticize yourself because you can't make food or you can't cook or whatever it is. But we're very, very critical Very, very critical to take it at a religious level. Man is made in the image of God. To criticise yourself is to criticise God. It's a very silly thing to do. Man is a glorious animal. Absolutely glorious. And he may come into this world with a whole series of traits and tendencies. And he has a, a fair length of time to work on them. And they will go. They'll all go with work. It's a bit like this... His true nature is the image of God. Therefore, man is just full of love and full of understanding. But he has covered his nature with these desires. And what you need to gain is the confidence, just like, say, my body is covered in skin and I choose to put clothes on top of that skin. Say I was particularly fond of this blazer and I wore it for 40 years, right? Which would be actually a fixation with regard to the blazer. But if I wore it for 40 years it can never become part of my body. Even if I wear it for 40 years, I can still take it off. All right. And what I have taken on in my nature, in the forms of impatience and anger and envy and all these, are like clothes. They're not really me. And they can go. It does take discipline, and practice, and these sort of things. But they can go. And nature has a way of working. Just like paint takes a while to dry, Without a spectacular event, anger just doesn't go like that. I've told this story before. When I joined the School of Philosophy, I would be classified as a very aggressive driver who would make all sorts of uh, hand gestures to people who didn't match my standard of driving. And, you know, rudeness at a level that my mother would be embarrassed to drive with me. She would so sort of slink down in the front seat so that nobody could see her. What I noticed after a period of time in the school and some practice, was that if I lost my temper with a driver, the pain stayed with me for a very long time. The man or woman could be halfway down to Wexford or Cork or something like this, and I would still have the pain in my stomach, and the mind would still be planning all sorts of revenges, you know, mining roads to Cork and things like that. And what actually put me off anger was the pain. I didn't like the pain. And what happened was that one began to see the anger in the middle of the event. So I would be mouthing something to somebody or the window would be wound down and there'd be various hand signals. I would suddenly see it. And sometimes I would stop and sometimes I would continue. And then what happened over a period of time, I began to see my hand going for the window. And then I would sometimes continue and sometimes I would stop. And then I began to see the anger determining what the response should be, you know, what action should follow. And I would sometimes go the whole way and sometimes I would stop. Then you began to see it as a a potentiality, as the possibility of anger. So you would see the so-called bad driving and then the potentiality of an angry response. And sometimes it would go the whole distance and sometimes it fall away. And if you keep letting it go, one day the potentiality disappears. But just don't cross me on the road, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, be patient with yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely essential. Yes? You spoke
2: at one point about the connection between patients and religion. And in these days where religion is under some pressures and decline, is that having an effect on patients? just the sheer decline of that impetus in you know, people's lives?
0: Yes, well, absolutely. But I think what is very, very helpful is to differentiate between church and spirituality. There is no less desire or interest in mankind for there to be love in his or her life. That has not declined. Nobody wants any less peace. Nobody wants any less understanding. But the formality of religion is difficult for people. So the idea of sacraments or religious practices people find difficult. But underlying spirituality, people are still as interested. But they're interested in it for themselves. What is extremely helpful about religion or the belief in God is that once you believe in God, you believe that no harm can befall you. Because, by definition, God is good. And therefore, whether you understand it or not, all that befalls you is for your good. And with that understanding, you accept life in all its modes. You know that you're not in a position to judge, in fact. You're only in a position to enjoy. So things that you would ordinarily classify as bad, you don't know whether they're bad, and you don't meet them as bad. You meet them as they are. And I've told this story many times, and it sounds harsh at one level, but it's not. When I was about 28, my father had a stroke. And it was a particularly severe stroke. When I got the phone call and had to go into hospital where he was brought to, and I went into this ward and he was at the far end of the ward. You know, His face was seriously distorted. The stroke was so severe it had knocked the shape of the face sideways and his eyes were rolling around like a village idiot and his tongue was hanging out. And this is the man that I'd seen maybe a couple of days previously and loved and loved. And I remember sort of an internal exclamation, oh God, no. Because it was just such a horrendous visual scene. And a little voice, one of those magical little voices said, make up your mind, Shane. Either the philosophy is true or what you see is true. So make up your mind now. And I'm ever grateful that the mind made up its mind, that the philosophy was true. One has never, ever, ever entertained a doubt since. So that moment, I do not regret. I don't wish my father to have had a stroke and ultimately die from the stroke, but I don't regret the event. It was... An amazing moment for Shanewell Hall. It allowed him to nail his colors to the mast and provided great strength ever since. So I can't call it a bad event. Does that make sense? As Marcelo Ficini put it so beautifully, you can suffer unwillingly or you can suffer willingly. You're going to suffer anyway. So, so why not suffer well? Suffer willingly. It turns the bad into good. It even reduces the pain. It's absolutely magnificent. In a situation like that, if you do meet a so-called tragedy for your family, and you meet it well, you become extremely useful to any other human being who has to face that. You're not just a private beneficiary. But anybody else who suffers loss or serious illness in their family, you can help them by your own example, by your own experience. And this is how, as Marsilio Ficino puts it, bad is turned into good. And what you realize is that it's all good, in fact. You just don't understand it. On the basis of religion, my father's in heaven. I'm the one who got the raw deal. I have to talk to you a (laughs) lot. Yes, anybody
3: else? Just on that final point, Mm. one of the things that comes to mind is, isn't there a danger of tolerating things which are in injustices and putting up with them saying that, well, ultimately they're, they're actually good. It, it's just a, our choice t- to actually see them as, as good things. And the example that comes to mind is that we can see the great advancement which has taken place in the, in the 20th century with not tolerating human diseases, which were before tolerated. And you could imagine if those people were to just tolerate those diseases and say that, well, you know, there is possibly some good within what we perceive as being a, a human suffering. So let's just tolerate it and, yes. and, and not endeavor to change it.
0: Yes, that would be a misinterpret to tolerate, as you have said, in a sort of a, with apathy. Or just allow evil to triumph is not what true patience is. It's not resisting. Now, why do you not resist? Because the resistance will distort your response. That's why. So, and again, may not be within your experience, but particularly with the, with the last child that was born, I was at the birth and My wife was having the normal pains that a woman will have when there's a childbirth. I noticed the nurses absolutely unmoved by the pains of my wife. And they kept on saying, Mrs. Mulhall, get a grip on yourself. And I thought, God, they're living dangerously. Uh, uh. But what I noticed was this, was... They were unmoved by her pain. Unmoved. And what my wife got was two brilliant nurses. Now, say they had been moved by the things. Oh my God, look, she's in deep trouble and I feel so sorry for you. The pain looks awful. So it's not tolerating. It is actually allowing yourself to be in that state where the true and full response can take place. It is like the Buddha not taking the offence so that he could speak to the man and remove the ignorance from the man. Anyway, it's not toleration as you have said. It is the retention of that state in which love and knowledge operate. And maybe if there was true patience there would even be less disease. Yes. In fact, just to make that point disease, if you look at the word is obviously dis-ease and you can't think of anything closer to dis-ease than impatience. Impatience is lack of ease. Maybe if there was more patience there would be less disease. We all think that disease is caused at the physical level. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's at the emotional level. Why do they call it disease? Why do they call it lack of ease or unease? Do they know something we don't know? Anyway, somebody, yes.
2: First of all, I'd like to thank you for a really excellent talk. There's another w- fibre
0: for you now when you leave the
2: room. <laughs> I want to take you back when you saw your father with the stroke. Yes. You have a multitude of emotions and feelings all thrown at you at once. Yes. And I'm quite sure in that period of time, it's very, very difficult to control them or order them away or anything like that because it's such a horrendous shock. I don't quite understand why you say it was good. Like, I know you would personally have wished your father that would have died in their sleep. And I don't understand. I know that. (laughs) That's a fact. You would wish you had a different way out. I also know that you had all those terrible emotions and feelings and terrible that banged against you inside and it was very hard to deal with. I'm trying to understand the way you handled that and the way you showed yourself and he perceived you, if he was well enough to see or know Mm -hmm. you at the time, helped him, Mm -hmm. and I can understand that part of it. Like if you see somebody just battered in an accident and, you know, they're well enough and conscious enough to see you, they're in an awful state. Hmm. If you can be calm, exactly, I, uh, you will help them more. Yes. I'd like you to just el- elaborate yeah. a little bit well, more well, on I that. Well, I mean,
0: since it, it was a real-life event, just to take the facts of it. The fact of the matter is that the bombardment of emotions, as you described it, lasted five seconds. That's it. Five seconds. And then it went. On answering the question, it went. And it never returned. An unmoved, and I just say it like that, not a code, but a son, unmoved by that event, was of great benefit to the mother, my mother, and a great benefit to my sister, and a great benefit to my brothers, and to my father's good friends. There were so many beneficiaries So many. It's not warding off emotions. It's not like that. Now, I can call that a gracious moment because for some reason the question just appeared in the mind. But it is possible to dissolve the burden with either love or reason. And again, I've used this example many times, so those of you who've heard it, if they can just forgive me. But when I was a young man, a girlfriend of mine died in a car crash, and she was one of the first girls that I loved. So it hurt me badly. And for about three months after that, there was the grief that somebody who loves somebody and has lost them suffers. And there was the contemplation of all the normal things, of suicide and doubting God's existence and why had he done this to me, I'm a good boy, and all that sort of stuff. I barely attended university and all the sort of things that would happen to somebody who's grieving. And one day I'm rocking in this rocking chair, looking out the window, and I should be at university. It's about ten in the morning and I've got up late and I've eaten my breakfast and I'm just rocking in this rocking chair and what my mind is saying is I wish to die. And I look down and I see this chest expanding and contracting as it takes in the breath. And a little question formed in the mind. If you want to die, why are you breathing in and out? Why are you not resisting? Because breathing in and out is supporting your life. And I looked around to the left where the kitchen table was and there was a couple of cereal boxes without naming the brand names there were three different ones and what I could see was the empty bowl which I had eaten from in it were the remains of my favourite cereal of the three and I said to myself if you hate life so much why did you eat your favourite cereal and I got up out of the chair and that was the end of the grief you see I didn't hate it wasn't true. It was something being held on to. It was the resisting the evil of this young lady's death. You'd never have to lose your patience. You never, ever, ever. You don't have to resist anything. And to do that, you need to discover who you are. I mean, it's a remarkable statement by Jesus. Resist not evil. If somebody said I'm going to form a religion based on resist not evil, they'd say, This guy's a maniac. <laughs> Your religion is all to do with resisting evil. But that's what he said. What did he mean? That's the real question.
2: May I ask May I one more yes? question? Thanks very much indeed. Do you believe as a I believe that the imbalance, some people are prone to be so much more impatient than others. You know, I'm going to a birthday party soon, and I'd love to buy him a longer fuse. (laughs) These things are impossible. It is much more difficult for some people because of their approach to life. There's an awful lot more work for somebody who is impatient. But I also noticed that people that work with very impatient people, it helped them tremendously never to lose their patience. Absolutely. if you have that opportunity, it helps
0: enormously. Well, it can. It's not a matter of going out and saying, I wonder can I surround myself with impatient (laughs) people. But when you see the pain that impatience causes, it's a wake-up call for yourself. Yes, obviously people have more impatience than others. But that's because of the particular set of desires. It's only to do with desires. If you didn't have the desire, you couldn't be impatient. Say you say, people coming late make me impatient. Well, if you didn't know what time it was, you wouldn't know to be impatient. They could be late and you wouldn't be impatient. What has to happen is the desire has to arrive. Where are they? They should be here now. And with that comes the impatience. Now a very good thing to do is to always question the validity of the desire. Whenever there's impatience, there's a desire being frustrated now. What is a very good thing to do is to ask two questions. What is the desire being frustrated now? And is it reasonable? So, you're trying to teach a child to spell cat. 30 minutes have passed. The match started 15 minutes ago. It's still saying D-E-T. In fact, it's going backwards. Because 15 minutes ago, it was saying D-A-T. And now it's gone to (laughs) D-E-T. Right? Just ask yourself, what desire is being frustrated now, and is it reasonable? And what you'll find is there never are. They never are reasonable. They are a demand by a pygmy that the entire creation unfolds according to his plan, who has no right to make that demand. Let the creation unfold. Let your body grow. Let the hair fall out. You know? Stop resisting. (laughs) It goes grey and it falls out. It ain't a tragedy. I know.
2: (laughs) Thanks very much.
0: No problem. Yes, anybody else?
2: Mr. Hall, you mentioned in the lecture that I think the words were to the effect that we should only speak when people are ready to hear what we have to say. Yes. And in, in an ideal world, I can see how that would work fine, you know, if everybody followed that rule. But where people feel that they have to impose their viewpoint on people and there's a lot of everybody feels that they have to assert their own point of view. I mean, I just wonder how does one apply that or how does one bring that into practice?
0: Well, you don't. You don't assert your view. You don't feel compelled to speak. What's the advantage? If somebody wants to hear what you have to say, well then say it, and if they don't want to, then don't. You cannot believe how powerful silence is. I was at a board meeting recently and people argued for maybe an hour or two hours about a particular point, and I remained silent. And eventually they ran out of things to say and eventually somebody woke up to my presence and said, well, would you like to say something? So I said something very succinctly and they said, that's fine, we'll go with that. Now, the thought did cross my mind. If I butted in maybe 45 minutes previously, (laughs) maybe the meeting could have been shorter. But it's not true. They had to express what they had to express to get it off their chests effectively, so that they were then in a position to hear. When somebody is giving out to you, let them give out to you fully. Don't say, hang on a minute. (laughs) Take offence. Let them get to the very end. Let them make their point. That's what they want to do. They simply want to make a point. Let them make it. And when you get to the end of it, you'll know whether they've made a reasonable point or not. And if it's reasonable you apologise unreservedly and if it's not reasonable you point out the errors of it. You'll find that if you say far less people will listen to you far more. I don't know how many words of Jesus are recorded in the four Gospels but it's tiny. For two thousand years Millions and millions of people have been influenced by these words. You see it, actually, in so many of the examples in the Bible. You know, when the the lady was caught in adultery and they brought her before Jesus and they were going to stone her. And they asked Jesus, well, you know, our laws say that somebody caught in adultery should be stoned. Should we stone her? And all he said was, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He didn't say, oh, God, look, let the woman go. (laughs) Have compassion. He didn't go to a great big diatribe. He just said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And eventually they all left. And then he, he looked up and he said to the woman, hath nobody condemned you? And she said, no, Lord. And he said, well, I don't either. Go and sin no more. That's pretty efficient, isn't it? <laughs> <You know?
3: laughs>
0: to some degree, it's influenced how you live, and are, if you're a Christian, and how I've lived and how millions have lived. And there's, there's maybe 20 words or 30 words in that incident. Be patient. Wait until the person can hear what you can say. And then it's absolutely effective. Sometimes people um, wonder why the wise do not speak more. Well, it is a discipline amongst the wise that they only answer questions. Because only when the man or woman can ask the question, are they ready for the answer? Then it's Effective the whole history of the relationship between the school of philosophy and the Shankaracharya, is that he only answered questions. He didn't send emails with lots of advice saying, I I think you should do the following. (laughs) It's the most effective. And it's a bit, uh, if I may say so, it's just as much a challenge as the tortoise and the hare story, is to trust that. Always listen to the last word. When somebody is speaking to you, listen to the last word. Let them have their moment. Right, we we'll just take one last one.
3: You've been very patient. I wonder when your wife is having the baby you had told her to get a grip of herself. Yes. How would it have been received as opposed to when the nurse said get a grip of yourself?
0: You see again that is patience that in a situation like that you've got two nurses they know what to say all you should do is be silent and hold her hand there's nothing you can say that's going to help as a husband it doesn't look bad from where I'm standing <laughs> I had a two-take once like that. <laughs> so the point about it is, don't say anything. Your wife doesn't want you to say anything. Just like I don't want my wife to offer suggestions when I'm lost. <laughs> I can work it out myself. But nurses, obviously midwives, are exceptionally helpful at birth. Husbands are good for holding hands and Remaining still.
3: Whatever is appropriate. Yes, absolutely. I had the experience of being in a similar situation and I told my wife that she would never remember the pain. (laughs) You can only feel it when you're experiencing it. Yes. But you'll forget it.
0: Yes. You're still paying for that, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, we started off with this simple little test. Are there ways for gauging one's spiritual strength? Many. Give us one. Find out how often you become disturbed in the course of a single day. So take a look at that. And let go the disturbance. Thank you.